Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King. Adam Silver King here to lead you through these hard times, Daddy, as we try to find a bottle of Thunderbird and get back some of the courage we had in our primes. That's right, 24 years ago today, Austin 316, that I'll just whoop your ass. And it's actually a big day overall when we're taping the show. Brandy Rhodes' birthday, Billy Kay's birthday. I guess June 23rd is a big day in professional wrestling. It's also a big day because Getting Over is back with our WWE episode. We're going to break down everything that has gone down over Raw and SmackDown over the last couple of days, along with some big topics in the world of professional wrestling. We're going to get to all of that very shortly in the main event. Of course, joining me today, Chris Vanini and his cavalcade of birds behind him. I guess it's uh, raining over there in Texas, so he has some friends joining him on today's show. You can follow him on Twitter at Chris Vanini. Of course, you can follow me, the Silver King, on Twitter at Silverstein Adam. Folks, I want to really thank you all for the effort last week with the five-star reviews. You know, I ask you for it. You know, they trickle in. You get two or three here or there. There were 10 or, or 12. I haven't even looked in the last couple of days. New five-star reviews over at Apple Podcasts. I appreciate every single one, every single time they come in. It helps us. It, it, it boosts us in the rankings. It gets us more visible. When people see the show, they say, hey, this might be a good show to listen to. And from what I've heard, we've picked up a, a good amount of new listeners. I'm getting a lot of, hey, you know, new listener, first time DMer, and it's great to hear. So the show is growing. Uh, I'm seeing some of our record listener totals episode by episode. You guys know I always keep it completely honest here. Our Backlash Ultimate Preview was like our top five most listened to episode. Of course, the WrestleMania ones usually, you know, get the mark. And of course, we've had some other big shows as well. Interviews with Seth Rollins were really big, but the Backlash Ultimate Preview was huge. And the instant analysis was really big, especially considering it was only relevant for like 48 hours so at, at most. So uh, just absolutely appreciate it. But still, everyone who hasn't, and there are so many of you who have not, head on over to Apple Podcasts, take 30 seconds, five-star rating and a review for the Silver King, for Chris, for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So I'm going to be introducing Chris momentarily, but the truth is there is so much for us to get to on today's show. I don't want to waste any time. So with that, we are going to dive headfirst into the main event. And Chris, where we are going to start today is The Undertaker and the fifth and final part of his last ride documentary airing Sunday on the WWE Network. So we received a lot of DMs asking us very similar questions regarding The Undertaker and this documentary. First, they want our reviews of the doc. They also want to know what the hell is up with The Undertaker? Did he actually retire? So I want to start with reviews of the documentary because I think the retirement conversation is longer. Obviously, people are going to compare it head to head with The Last Stand, uh, the Michael Jordan Bulls documentary of their final season. And really, I know people want to give The Last Ride a lot of credit because it's wrestling and it was really well done. For me, it, just, it doesn't really hold much of a candle to that. That was massive in terms of its scope. Um, it went deep into the real lives of these people and how they got to the, the place they were in that final season. And it showed all the, the trials and tribulations of Jordan and the Bulls and the entire team. The Undertaker Last Ride, I thought, was a very good documentary and definitely the best one that WWE has produced to date. And that's even if you include the things like the Monday Night Wars and all of that, which are more, they're not so much documentaries as they are like 
retellings is kind of how I look at them. But this this was a legitimate documentary of what they expected to be his final match or the final couple matches of his career, but really extended due to a number of extenuating circumstances, his health, uh, performances that he had in the ring, and obviously now the coronavirus and, uh, you know, what happened at WrestleMania. So it gets a two thumbs up. It's an A documentary for me, but I would have much preferred this have been larger in scope had it been 10 parts. And we actually look at the entire career of The Undertaker from the very, very beginning, spending multiple episodes on what happened completely in the past, leading up to the final five episodes of the end of his career, weaving maybe back and forth between them. It felt like too short of a documentary for someone who's wrestled for 30 years and and been one of the most unmistakable wrestling characters of all time, not just this generation. So I did think it was great. I'm not trying to take anything away from it. I just thought for an The Undertaker documentary, the only one we're going to get most likely, it was a little bit too short in scope for me. You know, it, it's weird to say something was too short in scope when it was like five hours long, but that that's that's kind of the baseline we're working with. Thirty now. years, though. I mean, shit. You know, like right. But I mean, coming off of you know OJ Made in America, coming off of the Last Dance, that's kind of what it, it's on the table now. And I agree. You know, I, I for the most part, but I'll say that listening to him shortly before this started, I, I actually watched the the Austin Broken Skull uh, interview. Right. And he went through a lot of that already. So I don't know if you want to say you can kind of got it from that or you could just say or you could just play audio from that and play clips over it to talk about, you know, when, when he was told in WCW that he would never get booked and, and stuff like that. So I, I agree. I think it could have been bigger. But for what it was, it was really the fifth final episode that made me realize how good the series was because the way he felt about leaving was different at the end of the fifth episode than how he felt at the beginning of the first episode. You saw over the last, what, three, four or five years that it's been, he really has changed throughout this period in terms of how he views his legacy and how he wants to go out. So I, I found that really interesting because he evolved for a guy. He's already been in the wrestling business for 30 years, but he really has evolved over the last handful of years. And I think we really saw that in this. So I, I really liked it. And it, it was it was an inside look at something we've never gotten before. And they did go back to certain things. They go back to his debut. They go back to the American Badass and stuff like that periodically throughout. So they did touch on a lot of it. But I I get what you're saying, but I still thought it was was really good. And it ended ended really strong. Yeah, it was. I guess my hope was that it would be a career documentary. And instead, it was an end of career documentary where you look at the Bulls and and the Last Stand and what they did there. It was also similarly about the final season, but they still managed to factor in the backstory of Scottie Pippen, you know, the backstory of Steve Kerr, how Jordan, you know, Jordan and baseball, which had nothing to do really with the final season, but they found ways to make those connections. So I just wish this had been a little bit deeper in scope because the the Undertaker deserves that. That said, though, if you take it for what it is, it was fantastic, of course. And you're right. The fifth episode gave us more of what they probably anticipated um, would have happened in the second episode. You know, this this was originally taped with Taker. It was supposed to just be yeah. a couple hours yeah. and it just ended up extending to this, this huge undertaking, uh, no pun intended there. Um, but ultimately it leaves us with one question. And the question is, 
have we seen The Undertaker's final match? And I think I'm going to really take a stance here that a lot of people aren't going to agree with because what did I see over the weekend? Hashtag thank you Taker and people stories being written by outlets, not necessarily the best outlets, but outlets. The Undertaker has retired officially. I didn't see that. That's not what I saw. I think people are jumping to conclusions that The Undertaker has retired from the ring. And to me, there is a very clear reason that WWE in their graphics and tweets, The Undertaker in his words did not utter that phrase. Uh, He did not say definitively that the Boneyard match was his last match. The entire documentary showed his constant conflict about whether to retire or not. At what point is it right to actually go out? And the final episode of the documentary was still being taped as of May 2020. So you saw numerous times in this documentary when they were taping him and and having him answer questions, he would say, yeah, I think it's it. If I have to go out with that being my last match, it it works for me. I'm, I'm comfortable. And then three months later, he comes back and has another match. So I don't take much stock in something that he said a month ago as the final conclusion to his career. And that's not the only reason. Because after the Boneyard match, here's what he said in the documentary. If there was ever a perfect ending to a career, that right there is it. And he was talking about obviously riding off on the motorcycle after defending his wife's honor and in a very cinematic match that made him look good. He also said, I did things my way and I'm going to leave my way and I'm good with that. And he said, I have no desire to get back in the ring. That does not mean I will not get back in the ring. I am not getting back in the ring. And 30 minutes before we taped this episode, he tweeted two words. He tweeted, thank you. So this is a guy, Mark Calloway, The Undertaker, who has spent 30 years in the professional wrestling business. He has the best and longest streak at WrestleMania of all time. It will never be matched. He has spent most of his life keeping complete or as much kayfabe as possible with an insane respect for the business. And this guy, who I'm just describing to you, he's going to go out retiring on a documentary on a random Sunday with very little promotion to it after a taped cinematic match in front of no fans where he doesn't put someone young over and go out on his back the way every single person before him did. I don't see that being the end of this guy's career. To me, this was left open-ended because he doesn't know and WWE doesn't know what is going to happen with coronavirus. It doesn't make sense for him to have another match at this time besides a retirement match. And it doesn't make sense for him to have a match like that without fans in attendance and without a cohesive storyline to put someone like The Fiend or Aleister Black or someone like that over. What I think the plan was this entire time was for The Undertaker's final match to be at Survivor Series this November. Not only is it the same event where he made his pay-per-view debut, where he made his debut period, it's in the same city, and it is 30 years to the day of his debut. If you want to talk about the perfect time and place to retire, that's it. But the problem is we don't know if they're going to be able to run you know, publicly with fans in November. And we certainly don't know if Survivor Series is going to go down outside of the Performance Center. So WWE cannot 
say, hey, he's going to have one more match, but we don't know when it's going to be. In my opinion, this was the only way to quote unquote book it, the only way to tell the story. And I still think there's a retirement match out there. So because it's WWE, we have to just naturally think that this documentary was built to swerve us for, for that exact reason. You know, maybe they want us to think he's done specifically because he's got one more in him or something like that. That that you always have to keep that in mind when it comes to progressing. You're always getting worked. That said, my takeaway was that if he doesn't get the call, he's okay with that. Maybe, maybe there is a plan for Survivor Series or something like that. Maybe, possibly, but, but you know, he, he the line that stuck out to me was, you know, if Vince called me and was if Vince was in a pinch and called me, if he needed to break glass for emergency, he'd really have to think about that, which tells me. If he's asked to come back, he probably would come back. Now, what is it? What what would it be? I don't know. Would it be put a young guy over? I don't know. He did that with Roman and it was a disaster. I I think Well, because they had like a 35 minute match. Sure. But I mean, he also didn't, that. you know, he also doesn't like having a five minute match against Cena. It's hard to, you know, these things are hard to do. But the only way I the way I would end the Undertaker character is another cinematic. You know, maybe he comes out for he makes appearances in, in Raw's shows leading up to the final match. Right. So he gets the crowd there and everything. But the final match is another cinematic match. And it's against either The Fiend or Sting. I, I think. I, I, I with the way the Boneyard match went, with the way he clearly was very happy with it, even though it was tough. I found that interesting in the doc how he said he he was it felt like he'd gone through a 45 minute match or something like that because he had to keep stopping and starting. And that was really difficult um, physically. I, I found that actually really interesting in terms of how they are having to film that. But because he was so happy with how it played out, I think you could get away with a, another a Firefly Funhouse or something with Sting, and then and, and then that's the end. I, well, I That's how I would end it with The Undertaker. The idea of him putting a young guy over in the ring in front of a full crowd, I don't know. He, he I, I feel like he did it. And even if it was a great match against Roman Reigns, it kind of was what it was, and I don't, know if I, wanna, I don't know if I need to see it again. Well, what I, what I would kind of venture to say is <clears throat> think about the Firefly Funhouse match. Think about how it ended. You know how it ended in the ring? even though it wasn't really a match, you know what I mean? But um, with Cena there, it was dark and, and whatever. Yeah. I would think something like that, where yeah. where what you do is you have a retirement tour, basically. So you have four Raws that he shows up on, or SmackDowns, I guess, because it's The Fiend. Four SmackDowns he shows up on. You pop ratings for those shows. You get good crowd attendance for the lead, for WWE returning to arenas. Um and you have the back and forth promos between him and Bray Wyatt. And then you have the equivalent of a Firefly Funhouse match. I don't know what you call it, but you do something a little bit more fiendish than Firefly Funhouse. And you have the vast majority of it, 95% of the match, take place in the Firefly Funhouse or in the minds of these people, just like what happened with John Cena. So the, the Fiend taking The Undertaker through his career. The stuff with, you know, where, I mean, where he burned his brother alive um, or, you know, tried to <laughs> in, in, in kayfabe. The stuff with, you know, the um, 
I, for, I don't want to call it a cross, but when he used to string people up on the, the symbol, they used to call it, the Undertaker symbol, that period of his career, the American badass, some of the things he did, maybe people he's hurt, just like with Cena, all the twists hang, and turns of his career. Boss, hanging the big boss man. Hanging the, the big boss, yeah, hang the big boss man, although they definitely won't show that. Um, but, losing, but losing to Brock Lesnar and then needing to low blow Brock Lesnar and then the Roman Reigns botches and all that stuff, right? And dead man, this is the end of your career. It's time to call it quits, whatever. And then at the final scene that we saw with John Cena and Bray Wyatt, instead of doing that away from people, all of a sudden the lights go out in the arena and they both show up in the middle of the ring. The crowd pops in a major way. The Fiend finishes off the Undertaker. Taker goes out on his back. Fiend walks off or dis Fiend disappears. And then the Undertaker gets the ovation that he deserves to say, hey, you know, we know that was it. See you later. So I think there are ways you can combine cinematic with real. You can make that happen. You can give them a real send off. You can put someone over on the way out. I just really don't see this guy, this 30 year veteran who does everything by the book the right way. I, I just don't see a way in which he doesn't put someone over on the way out. And you can he didn't put AJ over. He won that match. And it's not just about losing, but it's about giving that push to someone else, giving that mystique and the fiend man could really siphon off of that and become that next character. He already has three personalities. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but he could really utilize it. So I don't know. It was way too open-ended for me to say that was the Undertaker's retirement. It's why most major legitimate outlets did not write the Undertaker has retired stories. You know, that it was left to some of those other little blogs to kind of do and try to steal traffic. Um, that's how, that's my perspective of it. I just don't really think that that was the last time we will see the undertaker in a wrestling physical setting. Let, let me ask you this real quick. Yeah. How would you feel if his last match was against sting? Um, I wouldn't be happy because sting, I mean, I know people want that match. Sting almost had his life ended. I mean, with the buckle bomb with Seth did, Rollins. Did, did you see that untold, by the way? The Rollins I did. Sting? It was good. It was really good, yeah. It was very good. And, um, and it showed, yeah, how, how dangerous that was, yeah. Yeah, there's no reason for Sting to be in another match. The Undertaker beating Sting doesn't do anything for either of them. Um, it's just unnecessary. So, no, I, I heard you say that. I kind of tried to gloss over it so I didn't <laughs> trash it. But no, I don't want to see that. I want to see The Fiend. I want to see Aleister Black. I want to see someone where it, it would be a younger person who would be there to end his career and succeed in doing so. Just like Shawn Michaels did to Ric Flair, just like The Undertaker did to Shawn Michaels. I mean, how do you break that chain? You, you, you know, you don't. So it would be really disappointing for me if that was legitimately how The Undertaker retired. And I know, and even if he retires, you're still going to see him on TV like Ric, like Ric Flair. I mean, Ric Flair had his final match. So did Shawn Michaels. I mean, you still see them show up. So did Austin. Maybe, I mean, maybe. But Ric Flair comes out to cut promos and talk about Charlotte and stuff like that. Like, that doesn't really fit The Undertaker's future post-wrestling. Well, no, fine. But Austin Austin will come out and stun some people. You know, you'll have The Rock. Yeah, I guess it, those people are very promo-based when they do show up. Um, or, or maybe he comes back as American Badass and chokes on somebody. Yeah, I don't know. You're right. You are right, though. Those people and their characters lend themselves to be in front of an audience in a non-wrestling role more so than The Undertaker does. I guess my yeah. point is that we will see him again one way or another. But I just I, I honestly I, I can't see that it being his retirement. 
it would be one of the more surprising things to me as a longtime wrestling fan for The Undertaker's last match to be cinematic, not in front of fans, not putting someone over, not going out on his back. And and especially when the Survivor Series possibility remains a possibility as of today. Yeah, my my fantasy booking probably can't happen because of the time in the calendar. But you you do Undertaker's thing cinematic for maybe a SummerSlam and then an Undertaker Bray Wyatt for Survivor Series to end it. You make it a trilogy of cinematic matches and off he goes. Probably not going to happen, but if, uh, if, if I had my... If I, if I had my ways about it, that's how I would do it. Yeah, and, and honestly, even if they didn't give us in front of fans and some of the other things I'm talking about, I still think he should have another match and put over The Fiend or put someone else over. It, it just, it doesn't feel like, the Boneyard was great. And if it was the end to someone's career and it was built up that way, it would be great. But that someone cannot be the phenom. It cannot be the guy who's been doing this for as long as he has and the way he has abiding by the rules of wrestling the way he did. I'm not trying to be Jim Cornette here and say that kayfabe needs to be kayfabe and every single person needs to go out on their back. That's not how I feel. But The Undertaker being The Undertaker, Mark Calloway being Mark Calloway, living and dying by the traditions of wrestling, it would just be really shocking for me if that was it. But that was 20 minutes of The Undertaker. um, And we need to move on. And obviously another big story Uh, came out in the world of professional wrestling over the weekend, and it was the hashtag speaking out allegations that have really taken the entire industry, in particular the British wrestling scene, but the entire industry by storm. And before we get into that, because I don't want to interrupt the serious talk, this all came around the time that Matt Riddle was set to make his debut on the main roster in WWE as a SmackDown superstar. The match was pre-taped, as was the entire show, obviously. And there are some reasons I will get to later why Riddle ended up being on the show and WWE ended up not changing direction. And I want to talk, before we talk about all the allegations and everything that's going on, I want to talk about Matt Riddle's debut because there's really no other place to put it in the show. And I also, like I said, I don't want to interrupt serious talk by then going into wrestling. For me, this was one of the strongest debuts I can remember. I think it's top three in terms of a television debut. Up there with John Cena, up there with Paige. And you can say because John Cena was so young and so inexperienced and so unknown that this was even stronger. It really lines up with Paige's debut. Um, The AJ Styles championship celebration they had for the Intercontinental title was a very smart way to kick off the show with that many people around the ring, some of them buying into it, some of them kind of being flippant about it, and thinking that his first challenger, despite the Riddle announcement that he would may have his debut match on SmackDown, I assumed it would be Daniel Bryan, I assumed it would be Drew Gulak, Cesaro, someone like that, um, but it ends up being Riddle. And I thought it was really smart to have him come out. He got a really nice pop from the crowd that was there, the people that were there, and they ended up having an excellent match with Riddle getting the clean victory, which of course is the right move in someone's debut. It was also very smart that AJ Styles made it a point to be over the top as a heel and say, this is not for the title. I would never put the title on the line in a situation like this because you don't want Styles losing the title to Riddle so quickly. And you do want to see a more real match where Styles would probably cheat to win, of course. Um, I do wish that they had gone back to Riddle for a post-match promo and him getting daps backstage maybe from some of the legends or some of the longtime wrestlers 
in WWE. We saw a good promo from him on social media after the show was over. I don't know why they don't work those things in. When someone has a big moment, immediately go back to them and kind of get their thoughts on it in the backstage area. Maybe have someone else step up to them as a future challenger. That's the storytelling that we want to see. But, um, you know, before we move on, what did you think really about Riddle's debut and what happened on SmackDown Friday night? Yeah, I I thought about Kevin Owens' debut as well. I know Mm. Kevin didn't Mm -hmm. win the championship in his first night, but he knocked out Cena. He did, no. It's it's up there too. Yeah, would would go on to to win a one-on-one match. So, uh, looked great. I mean, my only... he looked really strong. I think you saw some of his best work and everything he can do physically in the ring. My my only complaint about the match was there were so many camera cuts. I know. It was weird. Like, it was distracting. Like, they were just boom, 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 boom. It was hard to kind of get a sense of what was going on. Um, and, you know, so, oh, someone wins the championship and they immediately get pinned by somebody else in a non-title match is a very, very annoying trope that plays out time and time again. If, 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 Outside of that context, I think it worked. Um, I think it worked great. And if you're trying to get somebody over off a start, couldn't do much better than that. Other than I agree, a promo either in the ring afterward or later in the night somewhere to remind people of what happened um, to to continue to put someone over like that. It is a trope. This is the circumstance, though, where yes. it's okay. Where yes. it's okay. If you're going to do it, this is where you you can allow that to happen. And you're right. Owens, Kevin Owens, along with Paige, um, this is really in that upper echelon of debuts. And we've seen, obviously, what Kevin Owens' career was like. We saw what Paige, um, her career was until she unfortunately had to retire. And obviously, Cena was not actually able to ride that initial wave of momentum. He had to completely reinvent himself. But ultimately, they saw something in him where they decided to give him that moment. And it ultimately worked. So... This is very similar to me. And like I said, um, I thought Riddle had a great debut. It was, I don't want to use the word unfortunate if because if this ends up being true, but if it ends up not being true, it was unfortunate that this happened with a backdrop of controversy. That controversy being Matt Riddle being accused of sexual assault as part of this hashtag speaking out movement that began last Thursday on Twitter. And it would be very difficult for us on this show to get into the details of every single allegation against every single person, person, especially because, as I mentioned, the vast majority of them are actually from the British wrestling scene. And while I do try to keep up with professional wrestling best I can, British wrestling, the vast majority of people there, I don't know them. I've never heard of them. And I couldn't separate one person from another. But the allegations were varied. Everything from uh, sexual assault to abuse to, you know, um, discrimination. It ran the entire gamut. In terms of the people that we know uh, in the in terms of their popular, their bigger names, WWE has gone ahead and fired Jack Gallagher. Uh, Jordan Devlin and Legaro are both implicated with allegations and they are being presumably investigated by WWE. We also have Velveteen Dream, who is facing accusations uh, of being a child predator, uh, grooming teenagers via direct message on Twitter. And there's a lot of interesting stuff there in terms of, is some of it doctored? Is it all completely real? The things that he did 
are disgusting if if you know if they actually are true. Uh, WWE was faced with this prior to his title match against Adam Cole, and it's Velveteen Dream said something along the lines of that. There's lawyers on it. It's being investigated, and this will be taken care of, that he didn't do anything wrong. But now what happened in the wake of hashtag speaking out was even more proof, quote unquote, of his actions have come out. And it seems like any defense that he had initially may not actually be legitimate. So now we wait and see what the hell it is, what he did do, what he did not do, and what WWE is going to do about it for one of their rising stars and someone who uh, certainly I've said on this podcast, uh, I think can be a future WWE champ. But certainly, if true, these would be disgusting um, things that the Velveteen Dream did. Again, I'm not getting into the details of every single person's thing. Uh, and it is not a scenario where he would be able in any way, nor should he have a professional wrestling career uh, if this is all proven to be accurate. On the AEW side, they have suspended Jimmy Havoc, and he is currently in drug treatment. Uh, basically, they will evaluate him once he can completes treatment and determine whether they even want him to remain a part of that organization. Sammy Guevara does not have any allegations of abuse or or mistreatment or any of that stuff. But in the wake of the speaking out stuff, uh, there were some there was some audio that was uncovered of him basically talking about how attractive Sasha Banks was and saying he wanted to rape her, which I mean, you know, I, I think he was probably saying it in a way that was meant to convey how attractive he thought she was. But that is not a way in which you convey how attractive you think someone is. He, to his credit, uh, issued a very contrite and sincere, it seemed, apology. And he also spoke to Sasha Banks directly and apologized to her and had a conversation with her. So I have to give him a thumb up for owning it and at least taking those steps. AEW has suspended him, uh, which is also a good move on their part. And we will see what happens long term with Sammy Guevara. Uh, There were a ton of allegations against Will Ospreay, many of which were not new. It seems like he has been unbooked from certain things that he had planned to be doing. And that is very murky to me, the stuff with Ospreay. I haven't actually seen really any steps that have been taken. Certainly New Japan has not said anything, um, but we will see long term what happens with Will Ospreay. Joey Ryan uh, faced more allegations than anyone. He deleted his own personal Twitter. He also deleted the Twitter of his promotion. And considering how many allegations are out there against Joey Ryan and what they are for, I think it's fair to say we're probably never going to see him wrestle or even be heard from again, at least for any legitimate promotion that would have him for a reason other than to try to create controversy and sell tickets. Uh, Impact has fired him and Impact has also suspended Michael Elgin. Uh, David Starr, who tried to be a paragon of virtue fighting for wrestlers' rights, uh, is probably a 1B to Joey Ryan's 1A, or you could probably flip them. He's also someone who will probably never see work again. And it makes you wonder a little bit why Starr and Ryan were so interested in staying independent, maybe because if they ever had opportunities with truly major organizations, all of this would have come out and sank them um, just as much as it has with them being independent in the wake of this hashtag speaking out movement. And we also have Paige's mother, Sarah Knight, who has basically said she's quit the business uh, facing allegations of abuse uh, back in the United Kingdom. So dozens of you wrote in and asked us to cover this topic. But 
it is very tough to say what there is to actually cover. Wrestling for far too long has had this seedy underbelly to it with dark corners of racism and sexism, bullying, unsafe working conditions, and discrimination, particularly when it comes to smaller promotions and the independents, and certainly even the larger promotions. But back in the day, it seems much of that, the vast majority of that, has been cleaned up in the at the turn of the century. Um, and again, that's all not to mention sexual assaults and all the things that are being exposed, drug abuse of various kinds, and all of it, top to bottom, of course, is, com- is uh, condemnable. I've seen questions about why doesn't everyone just get fired by every promotion and never work again? But that's not really how employment and justice works. Mixed in with the dozens upon dozens of heartbreaking, legitimate allegations can easily be some fictitious ones, some exaggerated ones, some things that are not remembered properly. And you cannot just blanket cover and say, fire everyone and never let any of these people work again when some of those involved may not have done, may have done things that are distasteful, but are maybe not illegal, or maybe a suspension is more the proper um, action. Some people, again, we can talk about what happened with Trent Seven, a story that came out about him, which basically seemed to be totally blown out of proportion. And the people in the story even came out and said, look, it wasn't a great situation, but nothing wrong really happened here. Don't lump him in with anyone else. There were people's names that were thrown out on a list on Twitter who never had any allegations against them. So you cannot just come out and say, None of these people should work again. Everything that has been said publicly is 100% true. And we're not going to give any of them the opportunity to refute or provide evidence or proof that this stuff did not happen. Regarding Matt Riddle in particular, um, I have it on good authority that what he and his wife and his lawyer have put out publicly is indeed accurate, that this is something that they've known about for a long period of time. Um, that the individual allegation that was made against him did not happen um, and that they have had issues with the accuser for years. I am not defending him. I do not know personally those things to be accurate. I'm simply saying that it has been communicated to me by more than one party that Riddle will most likely be okay coming out of all of this. Um, But again, that doesn't mean that he has never done anything wrong. It doesn't mean that he did nothing wrong in this scenario. And it doesn't mean that any of the other people that I've mentioned should not, will not, um, or won't ultimately face penalties, potentially firings, and potentially never working in the world of professional wrestling again. It is such a large and difficult topic to wrap my hands around, for Chris probably to wrap his hands around, that There's really no blanket statement that can be made despite all of you wanting us to say that. So the best thing I can say is that any of these allegations that are true are disgusting and these people should be held accountable for them. And that does not just include potentially losing jobs, but also legal ramifications, whether it's felonies, misdemeanors, charges, jail time, whatever the case might be. But it is such a large topic. And there are so many ins and outs and there are so many stories and there are so many things that are people did put their name to and others that they did not that are completely anonymous that I am taking the, hey, let's wait and see 
what legitimately comes out, what decisions are made by WWE, by AEW, by New Japan Pro Wrestling, potentially. Um, some actions have already been taken. I think those are very smart and very good. Others, the wait and see approach, trying to actually investigate, get the true story before making decisions. Ultimately, I think that is the best thing that you can expect from companies of these sizes. Yeah, I, I think this has been a reckoning for pro wrestling that has been coming for a long time and needed for a very long time, just based on everybody's stories about what it's like. I've I've only followed a lot of this through Twitter. It, I have not gotten all the details on every single one, but I will say that the structure of pro rest of the business of pro wrestling has made this very difficult for, for stuff like this to come out in a long time because especially on the independence, everybody's an independent contractor. You don't, you don't have contracts. You don't necessarily always work with companies. And if you come out with an allegation, it's very likely the end of your career to assume, to accuse somebody else of something. Um, so, you know, very proud of these, mostly women who have come out with these allegations, knowing very well what it could do to their careers. Um, it's always about strength in numbers. And I think it's been good to see this, everybody build on everybody else. And in many of these cases, there have been corroborations from other people, right? Uh, not, not, not to go into the details of, of this, all the ones, but the ones where there is a, a name behind it and corroboration from other people, there is a lot of credibility to stuff like that. That's not to say mm -hmm. something is certainly true or certainly not true. But the idea of credibility is that this is somebody worth listening to on this topic. So we'll see what plays out over the next few weeks, months. If, if, if Hopefully this continues to happen and people who have done bad things continue to get exposed. And uh, wrestling needs to get cleaned up in a major way and in a, in a sport where they're, like I said, it's independent contractors, there aren't unions, it puts workers in very difficult spots sometimes. And it's been very, I think, good to see people sticking up for each other, defending each other and helping each other in, in these situations. And hopefully it, hopefully it cleans up wrestling for the better. No, that's a really good point. Because if you've ever taken, if you've ever had a job where you've worked at a major corporation or whatever the case, you've taken an HR seminar or HR classes, and they always talk about the fear of retaliation. And I think that these women that have come forward with these allegations, had they done them individually here and there when things happen, for as bad as it is, the truth is that some promoters would say, well, if that, that's a woman who's making allegations, we're just not going to book her. And the fear of retaliation is real. But what I think the hashtag speaking out movement succeeded in doing is providing a little comfort and a little bit of a safe space for women to come out and say the things that they have wanted to say, tell the stories that they have wanted to tell for an extended and far too long period of time without fear of retaliation to say, I'm going to speak on something that happened to me. And certainly there are larger names in the industry that have also come out and said things, which provides a little bit maybe of a safety net to some of the more independent and smaller and less experienced women's wrestlers to come and say some of the same things. And I was glad to see that everyone had each other's back, that some of the biggest names in the industry are supporting these accusations and are, are standing up for the smaller people in the industry and giving them an opportunity to have their voices be heard. Ultimately, I think 
what needs to come of this, in addition to everyone being dealt with individually as the accusations and as the evidence and proof are fit for each individual person. Workplaces and wrestling in general needs to be safer for women. And that goes from training to ensuring they have separate places to change in the locker room. And I'm talking about independent because obviously WWE, AEW, they have all this stuff set up. But different training areas, different locker rooms, safety while they're at venues and ensuring that there is a separation between the talent and the fans. And then, of course, when female performers leave arenas and move on to hotels or get in their cars to go to the next city, having some type of system of safety where there's a promoter or there's a, a chief in charge person in charge of safety where they know they can call someone and get help if they feel like they're in a dangerous situation. And hopefully that is the good that comes out of the speaking out movement, which is that wrestling becomes safer and more opportunities become get created for women in this industry without fear of retaliation, where if something bad happens, that they feel comfortable that they're able to tell someone and have justice be done in one way or another. There's, there's no, you can't say that every single person that's had an allegation against them is legally going to face charges. You can't say that every single person that has an allegation against them is never going to work again because for all the reasons I mentioned, you don't know how many of them are legitimate, remembered correctly. You know, everyone, the, the goal is to always believe the accuser and that is always, should always be the default, but things do take their course and you never know exactly how things are going to turn out. So, um, ultimately I think the, the response from us is that despite the difficulties in hearing the stories that were told by the hashtag speaking out movement, hopefully the performers themselves who told those stories and hopefully the wrestling industry as a whole is better off long-term that the stories were told and certain people in the industry will face the proper penalties for their actions. Now with that, as difficult as that was to talk about, we're gonna move on to the third and final part of our main event. Uh, women's wrestling, as it turns out, is ruling the roost right now in WWE, as far as I'm concerned at least. We had Asuka defeat Charlotte Flair on Raw to retain the Raw Women's Championship, earning her first pinfall or submission victory over Flair in their long extended rivalry. And there's a lot to break down here, Chris, because this whole thing started Monday night with Nia Jax and Charlotte Flair getting into it early in the show in a segment that I thought, at the time at least, did a good job setting up the storyline for an eventual triple threat match and reason for Flair to lose later in the show. I was really concerned when it got to that match that we were basically going to see Nia Jax show up, distract Flair this time, Asuka roll her up and get her first win over Charlotte Flair, unclean, um, via roll-up one, two, three. But we didn't get that. We actually got a clean finish with Asuka submitting Charlotte Flair via the cross-face chicken wing. Holy cow. I haven't, when, when have I heard that before? Um, and it was only about a 12-minute match, but it was obvious that the injury angle that they gave with Nia Jax really hurting Flair's shoulder gave her an out, her being Flair in this case, to lose the match. Part of me wanted that first clean win for Asuka over Flair to happen on a pay-per-view. 
but at least they did not go with Jax interfering to cause that victory. It was the first submission loss by Charlotte Flair since May 2018, over two years. And that one was at the hands of Becky Lynch. It came just as Charlotte Flair was set to undergo surgery. And guess what, Chris? Charlotte Flair, according to Dave Meltzer, is set to undergo surgery that will have her that will have her out of action for the short term with her likely returning by SummerSlam. So here is the question that we have to answer. And you can certainly talk about the match and everything that happened on Monday night. When Charlotte Flair returns and when she has the SummerSlam match that you know she's going to have, will it be a non-title match against Nia Jax? Or will it be a Raw Women's Championship match against Asuka? And will she win the Raw Women's title at SummerSlam? I mean, you could just ask me at any point, is Charlotte going to be in a title match and win? And I'd say, yeah. So, um, yeah, I was stunned by the finish, both because it was a clean Charlotte loss and because it was a clean Oscar finish. We'd been on quite a streak of every Oscar match ending in countouts or distractions or what have you. So that was surprising as well. Um, Great match. These two continue to be awesome together. Told a good story throughout the night. I was not aware that Charlotte was going to have I, I assume minor surgery um, so that it, that explains it. But it was another one of those. They like told a story throughout the show leading into the match. And then the match told the story. And that was something we got last week with Raw with Pritchard taking over. I know this is something we, we, we talked about. There's Pritchard taking over writing and how it would work. And there have been some stories that have flowed throughout the show. And this is one of them that I thought worked pretty well. And guess what? Charlotte lost clean and it's not going to hurt her at all. No, it won't hurt her at all. But she did lose clean. But they they can't just let her lose clean ever. Like no. truly, like truly, one hundred percent clean. They gave her an out with the injury, and and I'm okay with that on a TV show. But like, am I wrong to have wanted that match, which was twelve minutes? It wasn't bad for a TV match. But am I wrong for to have wanted that to be twenty five minutes at SummerSlam with Oscar winning for the first time? Well, that was my thought, too, was like, oh, Asuka finally gets her win and it comes on a raw. That's kind of weird. But, you know, if she was going to have to take time off, I get it. It it, it worked with the Nia Jax thing, too. I like how they even though we've talked every week about Nia Jax, at, at least they gave her something out of it. They they fit this in with the championship Monday with so many titles being on the line. I I, I would have yes I think I would have preferred other situations. I think you can do Oscar SummerSlam at I, I think you can do Oscar Summer Oscar Charlotte at SummerSlam, and honestly it would not lose a bit for me. Uh, even coming off of this, I don't I don't think it really dampened I, any future matches. I would agree with that, but then are you going to have Oscar beat Charlotte Flair twice in a row? And that's my concern, which is. I wanted and I thought that that SummerSlam moment was going to be Asuka finally getting her big win over Charlotte. You know, it's just a huge celebration for Asuka as one of the best women in wrestling, one of the best women uh, in the company. And instead, now it seems like they kind of threw away her win to now give Charlotte potentially the win at SummerSlam. And I know I'm being pessimistic in advance and that's never necessarily the best thing. But if that's ultimately the booking, it just it breeds into everyone's distaste for WWE booking where it's always Charlotte that has to go over, especially in the big moments. It's another title reign and it comes potentially at 
the, the demise of Asuka, once again, it already happened at WrestleMania where she broke the streak. That streak had to get broken eventually, fine. But now you can't even give Asuka, who has all this momentum, arguably the MVP of the empty arena era, potentially now losing the title again to Charlotte Flair at a major pay-per-view. It makes Asuka look like a second-tier wrestler in WWE when she truly is a first-tier wrestler. Well, I'll just say, I think I think Asuka could win it. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. We are, just we are. booking SummerSlam here, but let, if, it, if Charlotte came back and, and had a title match, I still think Asuka would have a chance to go over. I, I would hope that would be the case. The only other thing, the only thing that really disappointed me, by the way, was Charlotte, as she was making her way into the ring for the back and forth with Nia Jax, Nia was insulting her and her father and, and you know, her getting opportunities. Flair teased that she was about to rip Nia Jax for getting opportunities because of her Samoan heritage and her relationship, but she never did it. So I don't know if they cut it out, if it didn't sound good. Um, and because it was pre-taped, obviously, so they cut it, whatever. But I wanted Flair to go after Nia Jax, only getting her opportunities because of her family, just like Charlotte Flair did. That is a natural feud and natural storyline. And my yeah. hope, and my hope, Chris, is instead of them going with Asuka and Charlotte Flair at SummerSlam, I kind of hope they go with Charlotte Flair and Nia Jax at SummerSlam. It gives them an opportunity to book Charlotte as the face that they want to book her as. And it gives us the opportunity to see Asuka in a title match against someone else. Maybe a Bianca Belair, maybe a Shayna Baszler or someone like that. We'll talk more about both of them later in the show. So that's my hope is that they say, you know what? Let's hold off on Asuka and Charlotte. The the win that Asuka got over her makes up for the distraction losses that she got two weeks in a row on Raw. And let's move forward with Nia Jax out of the title picture, but feuding with Charlotte Flair. That that would be my hope. I mean, we, we've kind of talked for a number of weeks about how we don't like Nia Jax being in this situation compared to some of the other people who could be in it. So I'd love to see Charlotte against a Bianca Belair or somebody else instead of Nia Jax. But the way it, the way that played out on Monday, you kind of got to do Charlotte Nia at least a one-off maybe on a Raw or something uh, before you get to that point. So... We'll see. I was surprised as well that when Nia was bringing up her father, that that uh, Charlotte didn't bring up Nia's family history as well. So, uh, well, she teased it. She said, "Let's talk about family," and then she called someone over to hold the ropes for her. She got in the ring and she never talked about it. Right. That's why. That's what was weird. <laughs> it, that's why it was weird. I, I don't know if they were going to get into that or, or if she was just because then she goes into talking about how you know Charlotte Flair ended Oscar streak yeah. and Charlotte Flair did this and so I don't it it, it was a little weird it was kind of like yeah it was a setup that didn't get to that point just a little and, thing but that was And weird. the and the other option of course is that what you said happens where she fights Nia Jax on a Raw and instead of it being a one-on-one match of of either type at SummerSlam we get a triple threat with all three of them and that could lend an opportunity for Charlotte to pin Nia win the title at SummerSlam and then get into a few, maybe down the line, maybe into, you know, entering next year's WrestleMania or another pay-per-view with Asuka then challenging for the title and maybe beating Charlotte Flair for the title down the line, extending their feud. So there are multiple ways in which WWE can book this, but considering Charlotte does need surgery and legitimately had to be out, I thought they did the best they possibly could to make this all make sense on Monday night. Now, the other women I want to talk about, of course are Bailey and Sasha Banks, who have absolutely killed it. We've talked about it for months now, but ever since taking the women's tag team titles, 
they have somehow gone from 10 to 11 in terms of their work in the ring and on the mic. There were more smart teases both on SmackDown and Raw of tension between Bailey and Sasha Banks. You had Bailey volunteer Banks for a singles match with Nikki Cross on SmackDown and then on Raw forcing her to open the match against the Iconics when she did not want to, only on Raw for her to eat a huge boot and Sasha basically nearly taking the pinfall right off the bait, right, right after, right out of the gate, right after the bell happened. Um, so there were two more really nice wins and victories for Sasha getting the decision over Cross pretty clean and then tapping out the Iconics. And she has absolutely carried the team completely uh, through this entire run, which I think obviously is part of the storyline. And then after the match on Monday night, we saw that great swerve with Sasha seeming like she was going to challenge Bailey for the SmackDown women's title, instead challenging Oscar for the Raw women's title at Extreme Rules. And that's obviously going to be an incredible match. My name's Johnny. It's not Mark, okay? Yeah, but I'm going to mark out for Sasha Banks and Asuka going head-to-head at a pay-per-view. So very excited for that. They also had the attack when they attacked Asuka after she defended the Raw Women's title against Charlotte, potentially setting up a in-between Kabuki Warriors versus Sasha Banks and Bailey tag team match on Raw coming up at some point. My only major problem with this is that Sasha Banks is not a Raw superstar. And they have done a very good job, WWE has, figuring out ways to move people back and forth between brands. Certainly, we're going to talk about it with Dolph Ziggler later, and we discussed it previously with AJ Styles, where it makes sense for them to be on that brand for a trade or for whatever the case. But Sasha Banks is SmackDown superstar getting a Raw women's title opportunity. It's lazy booking to me, uh, along the lines of Dolph Ziggler, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. And it really goes to tell me that this Extreme Rules pay-per-view is a complete afterthought in WWE's mind. There's a couple matches it seems like they're working towards that have been long-term booked and that are going to make sense. But the WWE Championship match and the Raw Women's title match make zero sense. So I think it's okay because she's a tag team champion. And the tag team champions are inter-brand wrestlers if they, they can, can be, be defend- no they're not they can be defended on any brand it doesn't mean the wrestlers don't belong to those brands though. but sasha is sasha is allowed to show up on raw because she has a tag team belt she now, is. I, she now is. Should, should there be some sort of rule book that says hey if if she's in some other match and wins a title and has to stay there there's a trade or does the raw women's title come to smackdown if sasha wins it i don't know all i could think about was when that played out was we are really close to getting the two women power trip yeah, and I'm loving it. The, the the Austin Triple H two man power trip was a great. If you don't remember from like 2001 or 2000, mm-hmm. it was a great thing where where Triple H and Stone Cold became the tag team champs. Uh, Stone Cold was also the world heavy the WWF champ, and Triple H was I think the Intercontinental champ. And Triple H ended up tearing his quad and in, in in that tag team match with Jericho and Benoit, and, and that was the end of that. But uh, yeah, I was excited. I, I like the idea of, of two people teaming up and taking all the belts. I, I'm excited about that. That that got me more excited. I was able to overlook the way Sasha is she on Raw, is she not? I don't know. Maybe that's something we'll address. Maybe Sasha will say, 
I'm going to win the Raw Tag Team Champ and take it to SmackDown. Or or uh, because I'm a tag team champ, I get to be everywhere they were on NXT last week as well. I I, I can get around that structure reasonably. It, 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 it doesn't make, it makes some semblance of sense to me that I, I think it can, I, I think you can explain it. Simply. Here's the here's the thing though. They had the opportunity to explain it on the show. They said, um, uh, it looks like Asuka accepted Sasha Banks' challenge, but we're going to wait to see if that's official. So what they could have done is said, "What? hey guys, you know, Sasha Banks is a SmackDown superstar and she just challenged for the Raw Women's title. We're going to need to make sure that this is possible. And then 30 seconds later or however long later in the show, when they did announce that it was official, you come, they come back and say, yep, it has been approved by management. We have Asuka defending the title against Sasha Banks. It's those little things that really matter. And, and allow you not to treat your fans like they're stupid. They did it with Drew McIntyre and Dolph Ziggler, where Drew accepted the title, and we'll talk about that shortly, but he accepted the title challenge, and Michael Cole, not Michael Cole, uh, Todd, Tom Phillips basically said, you know what, it's good that he accepted it, but let's kind of see if that actually gets approved and made official. And then like 30 minutes later in the show, they made it official. So... That's all they need to do. Tell us the actual story. Hey, we had to do something here, you know, creatively, writing-wise. Let's make it work. And they did it with Dolph Ziggler and Bobby Roode and AJ Styles, and they did it. They've done it in other circumstances. They should have done it here. So I know it's a little bit of a nitpick. And look, I'm not trying to downplay the excitement that I have that we're going to get Sasha Banks and Asuka in a title match at a major pay-per-view or at a a big pay-per-view, at least, a B-level pay-per-view. So I'll just say this. I am definitely one who gets on WWE for things that don't make sense. You know, AJ was, I think, in the Intercontinental Championship Tournament before he was technically traded to SmackDown. Like that one, I think, to me, made less sense than this. I think the fact that she's we already know she's allowed to be on Raw. I think it passes, especially compared to some of the inexplainable things they've done in the past. At least they, though, they announced the trade of AJ Styles to SmackDown. So they right, made but it not at the sense. beginning. They, they didn't. They no, didn't. you're right. You're right. At the at the beginning when they announced the tournament, they did not. And it was I had the same issue with it. But then a week later, I said, you know what? They announced it. Okay, at least they made it make sense. So as long as they make it make sense, I'm okay with it. But right now, she's still a SmackDown superstar, getting the raw just like Charlotte was a raw superstar, but she was the NXT champion. So at least it made sense that she. See, was that didn't make sense to me. She she should have uh, that that well that was well hold on. Let me th- let me talk this out. So that would be the precedent, right? Charlotte wins the NXT championship. She can bring the NXT championship to Raw because she's a Raw superstar. Doesn't that mean uh, uh, no, no one Sasha- on Raw challenged for the title? But doesn't that mean Sasha can take the Raw championship to SmackDown now? Now that we've seen Charlotte, do yes, this? but she's challenging for the other brand's title. See, see, the the reason why Charlotte was able to challenge for the NXT title as a Raw superstar is because she won the Royal Rumble. So she yeah, had the. But- so she had the ability to do that. There's no I, ability I, that Sasha Banks has think, to allow her to do that. I think the tag team. I think the tag team rule allows her to do that, but we'll just agree to disagree. That's what I'm saying. The tag team rule gets her on the show, just like the NXT title got Charlotte on NXT, but it doesn't now provide the opportunity for Asuka to challenge for the NXT title on Raw. That that's what I'm trying to get at, and that's that's the analogous situation I'm trying to say here. But you're right. We're getting into the weeds about it. Uh, I'll finish up with this. So I was going to criticize them for having a new terrible tag team name. Boston Hug Connection was terrible. 
golden role models is also terrible. But again, 30 minutes before we taped the show, Bailey actually responded to a WWE tweet screaming, that is not our tag team name. So <laughs> thank God it's not, because that is another horrible name. I don't know why Michael Cole keeps saying it if it's not their name. Someone needs to tell WWE creative that that's not their name. Um, I don't know. The, back when they were faces, it was so easy to call them the legit huggers or something like that. Just a, a clean, easy tag team name for them. I like Boss Hug. Just Boss Hug. You didn't or need the Boss, boss Hug or something like that. Like there are so many options. I know Boss and Hug Connection is alluding to the Rock and Sock Connection. It's honoring them. But, but the Rock and Sock. It doesn't rock, rhyme. It doesn't rhyme. And as good as the Rock and Sock Connection were, as fun as it was, they weren't a legitimate, long term, awesome tag team. So. What are you really doing there? Um, but okay, whatever. My point is, I love Oscar. I love Charlotte. I love Bailey. I love Sasha Banks. They're all doing great work. Let's just clean up the booking and really, you know, solidify these storylines as you move into SummerSlam and the rest of the year. That is our main event for this show. We are an hour in right now, but there is so much we have not talked about. So we're going to run through it. We're going to spend a little bit more time on certain things as opposed to other things. One of the things I want to spend some time on is what I consider, Chris, to be the promo of the year. It is at least a contender. Right now, it is number one for me. Edge pointing out all of Randy Orton's weaknesses, failures in their match, saying Orton is not the greatest ever if he had to cheat with a low blow, that he is turning from a PG superstar who is now becoming the rated R superstar again and promising to see into every part of Randy Orton's life. Make you wish Cowboy Bob was firing blanks on the night you were conceived. It was a great idea to have Edge come out and cut this promo rather than just fade away with his injury for a few months, waiting to get healthy and return. To keep Edge in your mind to say this feud is not over, we're not going to forget about it, was really smart. Also smart was Orton's response. Immediately after Edge's promo, it was kind of weak backstage, almost like he was a little shaken by it. And that was very good. But then they had him come out to the ring, confident, standing alongside Ric Flair. And that promo rang true, that he was going to euthanize, or that he already did euthanize Edge and Christian. And he started feeling it again. The voices have come back to his head. And he is going to become the legend killer and really create the legacy that he was previously creating during that run in WWE. Then they bring in the Big Show. And man, I can tell you, when Big Show shows up on TV these days, it's kind of an eye roll. But it worked. They already had him there for the stuff they did on the prior Raw. This was all taped in the two-day span. And Big Show, being one of the few legends where it would really make sense for Randy Orton to kill, it's pretty smart. They had a solid back and forth together in the ring, it was really typical Orton that he would shy away from immediate contact, just as he did with Mick Foley back when he had that feud with Mick as a legend killer back in the day. And it makes all the sense in the world for them to actually, yes, have a match at Extreme Rules with Orton killing the legend of the big show, Chris. This, to me, A-plus material, not just the promo, everything they are doing with this storyline. And I am of the belief, and we're almost at the midway point, of 2020. And maybe we'll actually do something special uh, on our next week's episode. But this is in contention for feud of the year. 
that was to me already the promo of the year. And the work that Edge and Randy Orton are doing at 46 and I think 40 or 41 respectively, it is top tier wrestling to me. I've said for a number of weeks that I've kind of been done with Edge and Orton and kind of wanted to move on. But these last couple of weeks, even with Edge getting hurt, they've really built on it to continue it going in a way that I didn't expect. And for two weeks in a row now, we've seen Randy talk up somebody else, hype up somebody else, not necessarily for their sake, but for his own sake, because he needs to view them as a legend so it can take him to that place that he needs to go as the legend killer. And this is I, this might be the best work of Randy's career, uh, full stop. I mean, yeah, the, the, the promo stuff with Christian, the promo stuff with Big Show, like in a vacuum, you think, I don't want to see Randy Orton Big Show. But the way they present it and told the story and the way that Randy is is, is selling it, it's great. This is this is exactly how you're supposed to promote something and, and sell something and tell a story. And yeah, I'm a lot more excited for this Randy Orton Big Show match than I was the title match at like Survivor Series 2013 or whatever that was. And this this Legend Killer Randy Orton, I didn't I was out of wrestling at the time. I went back and watched some stuff. Same, same. But here. Legend Killer Randy Orton has always been talked about as the best Randy Orton. And as someone who didn't experience it live, I can see why right now. It's just incredible, like you said, that he is doing the best work of his career at 40 or whatever age he is. And, you know, it's always a little bit of a tongue in cheek joke that there's no one better than a motivated Randy Orton, except he's never motivated. Well, guess what, folks? Randy Orton is freaking motivated right now. It is it is so nice to see him perform at the level he is currently performing. You're talking about psychology, promos, in ring. He is at another level and it's starting to get to the point, dude where like he is in the wrestler of the year conversation and or at least he will be by the time this is all said and done and look I don't want edge hurt right no one wants him to tear his triceps but it, it's maybe the best thing that's happened in this feud or for the feud because it's now creating air it's cre- where where we said hey look having another match at backlash I can't believe they're doing this I can't believe they're booking it that way right And how is a regular wrestling match going to be a blow off when they already had a last man standing match? That's supposed to be a blow off. Well, no, as it turns out, the last man standing match, the match itself, was the worst part of this entire feud. (laughs) Every single other thing that has been done, every promo, every segment has been better than that match was, including the greatest wrestling match of all time, which may not have been, but it was up there. I mean, it's one of the best WWE matches if you if you actually allow it to enter that conversation, despite it being taped and cut and pre-recorded and stuff. So we're just entering this zone for Randy Orton where he's killing it. And we have talked about it on the show, man. And I kind of thought we were just BSing a little bit when we were talking about it at the time. But if you tell me that we get Randy Orton versus Drew McIntyre for the WWE title at SummerSlam, not only do I want that match, I want Randy Orton to take the title off Drew McIntyre. I don't know. I'm not yet. I'm not yet there if I want Randy Orton to take the title off him, but I absolutely do want to see that match. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, he is working his way, not working his way. He is the top heel right now on Raw. Oh, Randy abs- Orton. absolutely. 
And, and it's awesome. Uh, John Dunphy at John Dunphy 68. He wrote in, he said, granted, he probably cannot take a bump at his age and with his health conditions. But was I the only one waiting for Orton to RKO Flair every time he referred to himself as being the legend killer? No, John, you are not the only one. I knew it wouldn't happen. But I kept thinking like, why exactly is Flair out there? Because he didn't say much. And, and he, actually, by the way, Flair, again, cut a great promo. Like he, he spoke very clear and well. He, it is a total 180 from what he looked like a year ago. Looked like, sounded like, how he acted, how he walked. I'm so glad to see Ric Flair as healthy relatively as he is right now. It's it's just great to see. Um, so so I, I, I kept Flair, that thought in my head though, didn't you? N- not yet. I, I think it might get there. I, I, I was actually thinking this week, I like the addition of Flair to Randy Orton's situation because Randy Orton's been killing it, but I don't need a Randy by himself promo every single week uh, and going from there. I, I, I need other things happening around him. And I think Flair has been a perfect addition as as a hype man, as a mentor, as they have a background in evolution, like it, it makes perfect sense to add him to the picture. I do think there is a point where Randy will or should turn on Rick and, and take it to another level. I just don't think we're there yet. Maybe right ahead of the edge match, like the month before yeah. or something yeah. like that, whenever they ac- actually have it. Um, the other thing that WWE needs to do here, and we'll move off this topic. I'm just going to close on this is they need to find legends for him to kill because there's only so many people that they can legitimately bring back to have him beat. And there's only so many people that are actually older, that are actually legends still with the company. I do think that Rey Mysterio is an option potentially down the line. Um, You can always bring back Kane, of course. Mark Henry, I guess, potentially could be someone that they could bring in, although he hasn't wrestled in a long time. So... Jeff, Jeff Hardy, but he's on SmackDown. And he kind of got to figure that out, but it could be something and, down the road. And also you don't want to, like Rey Mysterio, you could write off for three months. Jeff Hardy just coming back and getting pushed. You don't want to write him off. Yeah. So it is tough to kind of figure all of that out. But I do think if they are smart, maybe they give him a month off here and there, Randy Orton I'm talking to, that they can bring him back and come up with some really good ideas of, of legends that he can kill because he is absolutely crushing it right now. Also crushing it. Friday night on SmackDown was Bray Wyatt, who returned with the Firefly Funhouse and an old friend that we haven't seen in quite a while, the cult leader Bray Wyatt persona, telling Braun Strowman, the Universal Champion, to follow the buzzards. Chris, this was to me a very smart booking decision, a great way to hold off the inevitable Fiend versus Braun Strowman match, which you know we're going to get. And when we get it, the Fiend rightfully so will win and take the title off of him. I think by inserting the cult leader here, it gives WWE an opportunity to let Strowman actually get stronger as champion, presumably with another win over Wyatt, and force Wyatt then to go to the depths of The Fiend in order to finally take down Braun Strowman and defeat him and take the title back. Because ultimately, this does need to end with Fiend beating Strowman. And really, when you look at SmackDown right now, He's probably the only one who legitimately could in kayfabe or should to take the title. Yeah, I was, I liked the Firefly Funhouse kind of brings that back into play in terms of bringing back past character types, kind of not quite a three faces of Foley, but like different stages of Bray Wyatt 
that we know he can tap into because uh, we saw it at, at WrestleMania. So that was a, a pleasant surprise. Um, I really, really liked that Bray Wyatt, and it kind of, I know, fizzled out at, at the end as he kind of had to eventually turn into, I don't know, a butcher or whatever you, you kind of look at that next one was. Um, but yeah, this, this was a, a good move forward. I, I didn't want, I don't think we could do three or four more weeks of Firefly Funhouse Bray and, and not sh- what was the fiend coming up now? Are they going to keep doing the same promos? This right. is a good diversion on this path to, to go down something different perhaps. Now I don't want, it can't be, it's gotta be more than the uh, Bray Wyatt Braun I brought you into this world. Cause we kind of, we, we just did that with the black sheep and all that stuff. So it, it has to be more about Bray and Braun individually than them together in terms of the story, in terms of their past, because we already, we already did that. So now it's just got to be about Bray wanting to get the up on, on Braun. I do also want to give a shout out. The repackaging of Braun Strowman in terms of the Titan Tron and, and the smoke and all that, it's really helped him. It's so weird that something so small can help a guy's character, but it really did. Haircut, not so much helping him. Um, but I also thought that in the ring, his response to Wyatt and his facial expressions and the way he sold this is the singular best thing he has done so far as Universal Champion. Yeah, it, it's getting better. You know, how he reacts to Bray has kind of varied. He's completely dismissed them sometimes. I don't think that helps. I, I think it's better when he's either... He sold he, this he, one. He yeah, took this exactly. seriously. Yep, yeah. yep. That's exactly what needed to happen, and, and I think it goes a long way. Now, back on Raw, we didn't get the Dominic Mysterio turn that I wanted, but nevertheless... I thought Raw closed with a really strong segment with Rey Mysterio and Dominic going back and forth in the ring, kind of maybe making you think a little bit that Dominic standing behind Rey, by the way, when Seth Rollins came out, may be the one to actually attack his father, especially when Seth Rollins got on his knees and held his arms out. I said, oh my God, they're actually going to do it. Dominic's going to turn on him. Didn't happen, of course. Nevertheless, uh, it was still an exciting end of you know show segment. I have been dejected that Aleister Black hasn't been getting used to the degree that Paul Heyman was using him. But to see him and Humberto Carrillo come out uh, and basically attack Murphy and Austin Theory, saving Rey Mysterio and his son, it was really solid. The action towards the end of the show with uh, Mysterio and Dominic trying to do an eye for an eye and actually take out Seth Rollins' eye was a very smart callback to just, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And it does seem ultimately... Like we are going to get a six man or possibly eight man, Chris, tag team match at Extreme Rules. And obviously six man tag match on a pay-per-view, you know, it doesn't really sound like the greatest thing. And maybe they will ultimately end up doing it at the main event of a Raw instead. But when you book it properly and you give a storyline reason to have a six or eight man tag match, then I think you have the opportunity to make it exciting. So what do you think about the idea of a six man and then I'm going to go ahead and tell you how it could be an eight-man tag match. Well, the idea of the eight-man, I have to assume, is is Dominic Russell's. And he's been... I don't know how we, if you could put together a match or be part of a match, but the limited athletic time we've seen of him these past couple of weeks, he's, he's got some... He's got kind of the basic fundamentals down. He, he flows out there pretty well. So I, I'd be curious to see that. In terms of them doing the Dominic turn storyline now... I, I'm of two minds. You know, we, you booked 
couple weeks ago, the idea that Dominic's going to turn on Ray and then join. Well, not Seth. going to. I'm just telling you how they do the greatest angle that they could possibly do. Well, but, right, and they they yeah. kind of they kind of just leaned straight into that and, and just put it out there and tried to make it happen. And so, in one sense, hey, we've moved past it, so maybe it comes again later, and and. It, it turns out to be a, a swerve in the end. I think it's, it's certainly possible. I think it's better than kind of having it float out there for a really long time and all we're all kind of expecting it to happen at some point. And then, no, they just, they, they, they addressed it and now we're moving on in the next part of this feud, whether or not it happens uh, or not. We'll see. But I, I think this was a, another solid step forward in this, in this, in this whole story. So Dominic wrestling uh, in terms of a six man versus an eight man tag match, Dominic wrestling would get you seven. Because there's Seth, two disciples, and then you got everyone well, yeah. on, the, on their side. So how do you get to eight, right? This is the booking. So you got a couple of weeks until Extreme Rules. You have Seth Rollins continue teasing Rey Mysterio about Dominic, how he is going to corrupt him or, or he's going to eventually find his way into his mind and, and ensure that he sees the light and becomes a disciple and whatever the case might be. And then on the go-home Raw before Extreme Rules, you have Dominic Dijakovic come out as the Dominic that becomes a disciple. And all of a sudden, you have an eight-man tag match with the Disciples and Seth Rollins against the other foursome with Dominic Mysterio getting an opportunity. The other thing is, if you're going to have Dominic Mysterio wrestle, you can't have him in a singles match. You have to have him in a six-man or an eight-man tag because you only want him in the ring for a couple minutes. And you just kind of want him to flash. You want him to do a flip. You want him to do a couple moves that he really knows how to do very well. And you don't want to just put him out there for 10 minutes, you know, asking him to go and tag in and out a million times. So I think it would be really smart because, listen, uh, so real quick spoiler alert here. You can just fast forward 15 seconds after you hear the siren. The rumor is that Dominic Dijakovic is eventually going to be on Raw. So if you're going to do that, why not have it happen right here? So I think it could be interesting. And we all know that we want that Seth Rollins stable to grow. We want the disciples and Rollins to actually become a true, complete faction. And three people, a faction does not make, Chris. Nope. We have determined that. That is law. And uh, that is how it is. Now, moving on here, Chris, uh, we alluded to this earlier in the show. And I'm going to give you a first crack here. But we had Dolph Ziggler debut on Raw as part of a two-for-one trade alongside Robert Roode for AJ Styles, who moved over to SmackDown as part of that Intercontinental Championship tournament. And now, obviously, Styles is the IC champion over on SmackDown. And what does Dolph Ziggler do? He immediately challenges Drew McIntyre and gets a WWE Championship match at Extreme Rules. So break this down for me. Break down the idea of the trade. Break down just McIntyre deciding to give him a title match basically out of the blue. So, so normally I, I would hate that title match out of the blue, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to say why I think it worked first. Dolph shows up. He explains he's the other part of the AJ Styles trade. Okay. Makes sense. We, we've talked about how we want that roster stuff to make sense. Makes sense. He comes in, talks about how he, he got, Drew McIntyre back to, back on track, back to where he was, the diesel to his Shawn Michaels, as you will, and that he deserves a title shot. And at this point, you're like, we've heard this a million times. The, the story, it's dumb. Drew, this is where I liked it. Drew turns it back on Dolph 
And not only in kind of accepting the match, he says to Dolph, do you want this match? How often does a face say that to the challenger in this situation? And it goes back to the character Drew has been ever since he became the champ. He is the one challenging the heels who we think he is eventually going to beat. He's challenging Bobby Lashley in a sense. He's getting in the face of MVP and doing these things. He's been such an aggressive, powerful champion that not only he's not going to be like, get all riled up and accept this match because he the emotions got the best of him. He knows he can kick Dolph Ziggler's ass. So he's asking Dolph Ziggler if he wants to be a part of this match and flipping it back on him after he gets asked that question. It's extreme rules. What I'd like to see Drew in a higher profile title feed moving forward. Yeah, but as a one-off, I think it'll be fine. Dolph will make Drew look good. And I love the way that this was set up because it continues to make Drew look look like a complete badass. So, okay, I'm glad I let you go first here because had I gone first, you would have rendered my point um, pretty shitty. <laughs> you would have made me look bad. So I'm going to give you... I'll give you a big dog for the point on Drew McIntyre. I did like that he kind of offered it up and said, hey, you know, what are you looking for a match? Do you want to, Is that what you want? You want a title match? Fine, let's do it. I'll kick your ass, right? It, it does speak to the type of champion that he is. The difficulty for me here is WWE's trying not to give us rematches. I get it. And they've done a pretty good job, all things considering, since they said no more automatic rematches for when someone loses the title or just trying not to do the same matches you know, frequently. But dude, I want another Drew McIntyre, Bobby Lashley match badly. And I wanted it at extreme rules because the freaking match of backlash was so damn good. And yet in kayfabe, Bobby Lashley did get screwed by Lana showing up. Now that gave Lashley's character an out, but at the same time, we still want to see Drew McIntyre get that definitive victory over Bobby Lashley. And I did think that they were still booking towards that at extreme rules. Now, Okay, so we're not going to get Lashley. I'm over it. Let's talk about the Raw executive who trades in kayfabe (laughs) AJ Styles for Dolph Ziggler and Robert Roode. Robert Roode, who hasn't been on television in months. You don't know if he's healthy in kayfabe. You don't know if he's healthy, if he still wants to wrestle. What's going on? But you trade for Dolph Ziggler and Robert Roode. Okay, (laughs) so that executive... I got got nothing to say. That executive should be effing fired, okay? Then Ziggler's promo where he comes in, I didn't like because Ziggler devalued himself immediately by saying, hey, I just got brought to Raw as part of a two-for-one deal, and now I want a title match. He's not good enough to be traded one-for-one for AJ Styles. He's half as good as AJ Styles, but he wants a, a WWE championship match against Drew McIntyre. That is why I didn't like this. Also, because it was hot-shotted, where Extreme Rules is still multiple weeks away. They could have had Ziggler say, hey, Drew, remember me? Remember, I kind of brought you in, like you said, as my heavy. I revitalized your entire career. I deserve opportunities. And McIntyre could have just as easily said, look, Dolph, I can kick your ass anytime I want. But around here on Raw, you got to earn an opportunity. And you have Ziggler go out and beat someone and get himself a number one contendership, right? They didn't just have to have it be, oh, okay, yeah, I can kick your ass. Yes, you get a title opportunity right away. So it's for those reasons why I didn't love this segment. And it also started to show off for me on a sour note. It felt like such 
Bruce Pritchard booking that, and Vince McMahon booking really is what it is, where it's like, you know what? We don't exactly have a perfect title match from the Raw brand for Extreme Rules. Let's just put Dolph Ziggler in the title picture. Remember, it was like, I forgot I forgot what happened on SmackDown. If it was Kevin Owens who couldn't or didn't want to compete or something happened, maybe because I think it was with Saudi Arabia. Kevin Owens didn't want to go to Saudi Arabia. So Vince said, you know what? We're just going to insert Dolph Ziggler uh, in a title feud with Kofi Kingston. And it's going to go on way too long. And it, it, it's just very similar to what happened with the women, where it's just kind of like, yeah, you know what? We don't really have a challenger for Asuka at this next pay-per-view. Let's just throw in Sasha Banks and have her not win the title because she's not going to win the Raw Women's title. If she does, it's, that would be awesome. But I don't even see, the two women power trip. Yeah, awesome. but I, I don't see her. I don't see her beating Asuka. So it, it, the, what I got from this episode of Raw was they just don't give a shit about the title matches on Extreme Rules. Coming out, by the way, of a Backlash pay-per-view where there were zero title changes, it seems like, at least from the Raw side, there's going to be zero title changes in terms of the two major belts at this pay-per-view. Now, look, there are other storylines we're going to talk about where, yeah, there could be title changes. But to throw together two women's title, two uh, major title matches on the Raw side, out of the blue, in one night, multiple weeks away from the pay-per-view, to me, it was lazy booking, and I just... I wish they could have done both of those things better, extend the storylines out one week. And I feel like it's legitimate criticism that, you know, they, look, I, I'm very positive generally about Raw and about WWE recently. I think they've done a really good job. And I think the pandemic era has saved them in many ways, forcing them to tape shows and book long term. It felt, felt like both of these to me were completely rushed. What was the reason for Monday being championship Monday, essentially? Because I was surprise I, they kind of they kind of pitched it at the beginning of the show i was like well, there's a lot of title matches here on a raw for some reason are they trying to hot shot was, a rating here or what yeah, was no, it it was purely ratings yeah yeah well and no and, it, no and no title changes which by the way i don't need them and i think aew just recently did a show where they had three title matches on one show and no title changes i'm fine with that nxt actually did the exact same thing so it's tv you want the title changes on pay-per-views right but if you're going to have four matches, and by the way, I'm already going to correct myself because I'm wrong. There was a title change. Akira Tozawa won the 24-7 <laughs> championship. So the major titles, the real titles, there were no changes. I'm totally fine with that. But if you're going to book it as Championship Monday, almost a Clash of Champions-like show, you want to see a development within these pictures. Instead, like I said, they just hot-shotted two new title matches. It was, it was the, annoying the, to me. The, the last thing I'll say about Drew is that any promo that involves Drew wearing street clothes or regular clothes, <laughs> I, I, I think it's it's a pl it's a thumbs up in my book. The dude just looks like an absolute monster every time he's wearing normal clothes. Uh, Charlotte is often the same way, and uh, I, I think it helps. I, I think it helped. I think it added. I, I, I get what you're saying. There's a lot of times we get in these situations where, like, you say you would have done something differently. And I, I think, yeah, that probably would have been better, but it doesn't make me think what happened was bad. And I That's still fair. think it was pretty good. That's fair. Look, a lot of times we get into this in our heads where it's like, well, I would have booked it this way. And because it wasn't that, it wasn't good enough. In this case, I did. I just didn't like it. So this is a little bit different. The Oscar stuff I know is going to be good. I just wish they would have given us the reasoning behind it being allowed and made it make sense in kayfabe. This makes kind of, this makes sense in kayfabe, 
I just think it was rushed and it was unnecessary for Dolph Ziggler just to get thrown over to Raw and get a title opportunity. So there's different levels of that. And I think a good example, like you said, and, and this is a fair criticism from you, but like the Mysterio Dominic thing we were just talking about, what would I have done? I already told you what I would have done. They're not doing that. I still love what they're doing, you know, but I think when you analyze WWE's booking, especially long-term over the last four or five years, there are so many areas in which they drop the ball by missing the obvious. Sometimes predictable is good. Sometimes predictable things are good. And WWE needs to sometimes lean into that. Getting a Bobby Lashley rematch would have been predictable. But that's okay because that match was so freaking good. So I'm with you. Sometimes I, I just do, go I, those directions, you know? Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I do want to see another Drew Bobby match because that was great. And I continue to like what Drew and Bobby and MVP are doing uh, in, in general. So hopefully we do get that at some point. All right, we're going to move on and talk about the tag team pictures on both shows. And by the way, I didn't get an opportunity to say this earlier in the show. You guys sent us more DMs ahead of this show than we have received for anything, including the WWE releases, the pandemic, everything. But this show is so jam-packed. You see how long it is already. I just couldn't fit them in. We tried to answer most of your questions, you know, in the conversations, in the topics that we're talking about. Any question that did not revolve around things that happened on this show, I will bring up in Thursday's show. So I will hit all your DMs on Thursday this week. But let's talk about tag teams. I thought it was a good week of tag team action, uh, action matches across all four brands, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, and AEW. But New Day versus Lucha House Party on SmackDown was in my top two matches that I saw all week. I thought it was absolutely incredible action going both ways. Lucha House Party is insanely entertaining, inventive, talented. We knew all of this, but it always takes someone getting hurt or them needing to do a fatal four-way or something like that for these guys to get on TV and get a big-time opportunity. I thought Kofi Kingston and Big E did them a service by selling for them the way they did in this match and having the action go on the way it did. That's the most action I've had all year. We also saw Bailey and Sasha Banks on commentary during that match. They were fantastic. And then at the end of the match, Cesaro and Shinsuke Nakamura attacking the New Day, basically saying, hey, we're going to be the new number one contenders for the tag team title and debuting, Chris, the Swing Shasa, which, holy crap, that was an awesome idea for a finishing maneuver. No surprise it came from Cesaro and Shinsuke Nakamura. That segment, everything that went down with everyone I just mentioned, one of my favorite things across all of wrestling all week. It felt like a step forward for the SmackDown tag division after months of just nothing. So, you know, ever since, you know, the Usos have been been out, it's kind of been Miz and Morrison in and out. You got a singles match, triple threat for a tag belt to do a rematch. It's just been weird. They haven't built up much depth there. And it seems like that's what they're trying to do this week is, is to build up some more teams to compete with, because in all three tag team divisions, there's there's not a lot going on. And you, you look at the tag teams that have gone to AEW recently and you look at it. WWE having three tag team divisions and barely anything in each of those. So this felt like an attempt to start to make something out of it, which has been a long time coming. Yeah. And there are, there there's reasons there's injuries. There's people deciding not to work. The forgotten sons, uh, Jackson Riker basically torpedoed their push. 
Um, so, so there's a ton of, there's a ton of reasons that all of this is happening, but I got to give credit to WWE. You know, I criticized the trade, but putting Dolph Ziggler and Robert Roode on raw as a tag team, whenever Roode does come back, that's an additional tag team on raw. And we saw another one develop. See, it was a great you, trade. It was a great trade by the was, raw executive. It was they a needed, terrible, it was a terrible trade. Depth. They were going was, for depth. They knew what they was, were doing. It was a terrible trade. We didn't even get Drew McIntyre versus AJ Styles championship feud before that happened. Uh, it was a terrible trade, but nevertheless, Good that there is a tag team there. Another tag team that developed, as we expected, Andrade and Angel Garza. We saw the tag team title match finally between the Street Profits and Viking Raiders. And to me, I I tweeted this on the Getting Overcast Twitter account. This was as clear of an example as you will get across either show of the difference between Bruce Pritchard booking and Paul Heyman booking. Under Paul Heyman, that match, yes, it took a while to get to it. It would have gotten 15, 17, maybe even 20 minutes in the middle of a Raw and would have been an absolute banger that you would not forget. Under Pritchard, it got eight minutes with a commercial break. So we got about four minutes of action and it was exciting, but exceedingly short. And now all of a sudden, this six, eight week feud between the Street Profits and Viking Raiders ends with them being friends and an eight minute title retention. So what was the entire point of giving personality to the Viking Raiders. So the title retention was obviously the right decision and the action was good, but there's a lot of flaws even in the match we got. I thought it was way too cute in the middle. They tried to be funny with the cartwheels. And as I said, it was too short for a blow off to a six week feud. They actually should have ultimately had this match at Backlash, given it 15 minutes and then ended it. Now, all of that said, dude, I was glad to see Andrade and Angel Garza get aggressive, attack, And there was a really good promo with all three of them and Zelina Vega backstage where she legitimately popped me and made me laugh out loud on my couch. I was drinking water at the time, almost spit it out when she called Charlie Caruso to Buck Chuck. That was a great promo from Zelina, Andrade, and Angel Garza. The interference was good. Angel and Andrade looking like they were on the same page was solid because you want them to be as a tag team. I hope they actually give them a name and develop them as a tag team. But now all of a sudden, this raw tag team picture, which was looking very weak as the Prophets, the Raiders, potentially, eventually, Ziggler and Rude, Angel Garza and Andrade. And if they can give them some freaking TV time, Ricochet and Cedric Alexander, who were incredible in the two or three matches that they actually had. All of a sudden, the raw tag team division has some juice to it. So, I, yes, I, it, when I saw Andrade and Garza come out, I was like, yes. Finally, Andrade's in the tag team. He'd been lost so many last handful of matches in, in singles competition. They needed to do this, and they did. And Zelina had they teased it with Zelina, worked out great. And I'm excited for what they'll bring to the division. Good moving forward there. As for that tag team title match, my number one thought coming out of it was, man, I wanted like five to ten more minutes of that. Yeah, that was it. Was really fun and really good match. And I wasn't sure if. It was short because that's just how Pritchard wants to do it, or because there were so many title matches on that show and so many things they needed to get through. I like that match happened. I was like, man, I wanted 10 more of that, and I wanted that to be the main event of Raw. And then I was like, oh, well, I guess we have a women's tag match. I guess we have, uh, I'm sorry, a women's title match. I guess we have some other stuff going on here. I guess you can't make it the main event. But I thought that the friendliness played out in the match like there was clearly a chemistry between them 
working that match together. And in story, I took that as these guys have been together for the past two months. They've worked together a lot, doing different competitions. They know each other inside and out. So they're able to counter and do all these different things to each other. And it came out to a really good match. I'm I'm okay with them still being friends and having a title match and being friends afterward. Like I like I don't know. I, I thought it did a really good job of developing their characters together as teams, kind of like kind of like the New Day Usos thing, where there's a clear respect there, and they can still put on fire matches every time they get in the ring. And it really made me want to see the next Vikings versus Profits match because they absolutely tear it up. I want to see that for 20 minutes, 15 minutes. And, and 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 go forward from there. So now there's a lot of other teams involved and who knows where it'll go. But I still think I would have liked more wrestling throughout that two months, month plus of gimmicky, weird story stuff. But I do think both teams are in better position coming out of it. I have no issue with them being friends afterward because not every wrestling feud needs to be stereotypical, face, heel, you know, whatever. So I'm fine with that. But to give us six to eight weeks of a storyline and for that to be the climax, I mean, despite it being entertaining for the four minutes that we actually got to see on TV, I mean, that's so underwhelming. No, it, like, it's, the same, it's the same thing. Here. It, it, it could have been better. It should have been better. I still think it was pretty good. It was fine. All right. Uh, we, we've got a tremendous... <laughs> we, 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 we've never agreed. We, this whole... That whole Vikings province thing, we've never but been. Even you said you wanted five more minutes. I mean, I wanted 10 more minutes. Like, it, uh, well, those, sure. those are two great teams, two athletic, yeah. awesome tag teams. This is a wrestling show, ultimately. Like, if you're going to have a title match and you're going to blow, blow off the feud, then give us the nuclear bomb. Don't give us the sparkler. They give us a sparkler. That's what I'm saying. No, like I said, I wanted that to be 10 more minutes and I wanted that to be the main event. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we saw a tremendous segment with Sonya Deville and Mandy Rose, Miss TV over on SmackDown. Deville, for me, dude, is becoming a top-tier promo in the women's division in WWE. And I thought Mandy Rose put her best foot forward on the microphone in this segment as well. You know, I did love the way that Deville and Ziggler were working together, but I'm fine with transitioning this to just a Sonya and Mandy storyline, not involving, obviously, Dolph or Otis any longer. It is not necessary. It really is about just them. And the brawl was great between both of them as well. Deville slapping Miz on the way out was a nice touch just because she's a heel doesn't mean she's going to take any crap and she doesn't need a man to cheer for her. So I thought it was great. I, I think it's pretty clear. I hope that it's going to lead to a match at Extreme Rules. I hope there are Extreme Rules in the match. And straight up, I hope Sonya Deville wins. Yeah, I, I think it's they, they, she every week she continues to be better. And outside of Sasha Bailey is probably the highlight of the women on SmackDown. So I, I, I it. They still have a number of weeks to get to the end of it. I think it has to get a little bit more than you got the opportunities I didn't get. I think we kind of need to get deeper into give us some more background, give us some more talk on their friendship or other situations that may have happened that maybe Mandy wasn't aware of. I don't, I don't know. So it, it's been great so far. I'm curious how they extend it to extreme rules at this point. Yeah. Now, I, I also kind of liked briefly the backstage segment with all the women basically standing around the performance center ring being like, hey, when are we going to get opportunities? And what, but they realized also they all did get opportunities. They all lost to Bailey. Bailey cleaned house in the SmackDown women's locker room. Straight up, she beat them all. So mm -hmm. I, I'm fine with SmackDown kind of the women's division being slightly toned down right now because they actually did have Bailey go through the roster. The question is, what are they now going to do with that SmackDown women's title? 
are they waiting legitimately for Sasha Banks to turn face, I guess, or get get tired of Bailey's shit and go after her and have her win the title and then everything resets? I hope that's the case, but I don't exactly know what they're going to do. So I am fine. This is a rare situation where not featuring the women on SmackDown actually makes sense in storyline, whereas on Raw, not featuring the women, and I was going to save it for later, but the fact that we're not getting Bianca Belair on TV is a crime against humanity. The fact that Shayna Baszler debuted, and yeah, I know it didn't go the way Vince McMahon wanted, but she's still a legitimate, you know, person who should be on TV getting matches and building herself back up. The fact that we're not getting Shayna Baszler on TV is a joke. Even the, the, and I was going to say this later, we'll just move into it now, but the Natalia and Lana stuff, like I get people are rolling their eyes because they don't want Natalia to eventually get another title match and they don't like Lana, but at least they're doing something with them and it makes sense. Lana is depressed. She's getting divorced. Natalia feels that she's been overlooked despite being this leader now that Becky's not there and Asuka's not much of a leader. She's stepping up into that role. I like it. At least they're doing something with them. And I was extremely dejected to see Liv Morgan lose again, obviously, after we spent so much time with Heyman building her up to start maybe being something, to be a legitimate title contender. But at least they are giving us something with her backstage with Ruby Riot, Riot trying to console her, Liv Morgan trying to say, hey, I don't need this right now. Like, I've already dealt with you. I need to move on with my life. But it does seem pretty clear to me, dude, that they're going to turn them into a tag team again. And while I don't like that for Liv, Liv is still young in her career. And she still has plenty of time to develop into the star that we think that she has that potential that she can be. But what have I said so many times on this show? I want WWE to develop more legitimate women's tag teams with entrances and names and finishers. And Liv Morgan, Ruby Riot does make sense as a tag team, as does Natalia and Lana. So the Boston Hug Connection, Sasha Banks and Bailey, they just went through the Iconics. They just went through Nikki Cross and Alexa Bliss. Well, what else is left? They just went through Tegan Knox and, and um, Shotzi Blackheart on NXT. They've now beaten all the teams, so they need to develop new teams. So I really can't criticize WWE for figuring out ways to develop new teams for them. And hopefully, maybe Liv and Ruby Riot actually end up taking the titles off of them. And this is a lot of women's segments and matches and stories that are happening outside of title matches. Yep. To have a Sonya Mandy thing that doesn't involve the title at all, the Lana, Natalia, Liv stuff going on generally outside the title picture because we've seen the Iconics lose like like three title matches now in the past month or two. Like there, there's got to be more and you have to develop stuff on the outside and not just, oh, we need a title contender. Let's quickly build somebody up right now. It's got to be an extended period of time you're doing this. And so this week was definitely a step forward in that. Yeah, totally. Uh, now, Jeff Hardy and Sheamus, that feud continued on SmackDown with a toast. Sheamus promising a toast this upcoming Friday uh, after Hardy pointed out how much Sheamus is a bully and Sheamus agreed. So they're continuing with the storyline. I thought the match at Backlash was solid. I thought the pissed on, pissed off segment that was the go home to Backlash, I found it entertaining and I still like them continuing to feud. It's pretty clear that Extreme Rules thematically with the the purple and the green is very much Jeff Hardy themed. So he's probably going to be on the poster if and when they release one. And it does seem like we are going to get Jeff Hardy versus Sheamus in some type of extreme blow off match. Sheamus already got the win 
at Backlash. It speaks to me as an opportunity for Jeff Hardy to get the win going forward at Extreme Rules. Obviously, we'll break that down in a few weeks. But I thought this was a totally fine segment to continue the storyline. And I know some people find it distasteful, but at this point, you have to be over it. You have to just kind of accept what they're giving you. And I think it continues to work. Yeah, it was fine. I, I'm, I'm not super into this feud so far. It kind of just was what it was. And I have no, no okay. deeper thoughts than that on this one. All right. We also saw the second time on Raw that Bobby Lashley has knocked out R-Truth. Again, not winning the 24-7 title despite doing so. Akira Tozawa ran into the ring, grabbed the title, and now he is the 24-7 champion along with the Ninjas. I do get that the 24-7 title is beneath Lashley, but I actually think it could have been a way for them to have elevated the title, had him hold it for three, four months, and then lose by fluke, you know, uh, maybe he gets tripped up somewhere, someone something falls on top of him, someone else gets the pin and the 24-7 title moves on. But it's okay that they didn't go in that direction because it's pretty clear they are building up towards an eventual U.S. title feud with Apollo Crews, considering MVP's continued recruitment of Crews and Lashley's post-match attack after Crews beat Shelton Benjamin uh, with that awesome spinning sit-down powerbomb, which is a sick finisher. Um, the thing is, everything that MVP says to Apollo Crews is totally accurate. And even though, yes, MVP is the heel, the best heels, as you've mentioned before on the show, are the ones that speak in truth. And there's some truth to what they're saying. MVP is the second, actually, longest reigning US champion, Dean Ambrose being the first. But at the time he retired, he was the, or left WWE, he was the longest reigning US champion. Uh, and he speaks from experience that Apollo Crews does need to protect himself because he just won the title and he's giving too many opportunities and having too many matches. So again, we've talked about how MVP is doing an absolutely incredible job all over Raw. This segment, everything he's doing with Lashley and Cruz is another example of it. MVP batting basically a thousand so far and a Bobby Lashley-Apollo Cruz match. If you're not going to have Lashley go after McIntyre, it is a natural progression. He lost a world title match. Now he goes down to the mid-card. Yeah, you know, we talked about it. would have loved to see another McIntyre-Lashley feud, but th this has been building for... MVP and Lashley going down this path is not like out of nowhere. Like this is MVP has been in this mix here for weeks now. So it makes total sense for them to go down that path. I personally would love Apollo Crews to just join them because I want factions yeah, me too. all the time. Yeah. Um, but doesn't seem like that's uh, going to happen, but still pretty good. I, I mean, MVP is continues to be completely captivating every time. He's out there and uh, it, it, everything he does is always one of the best segments of the week. By the way, doesn't it feel like and and look, I'm, I'm just I'm not speaking. I'm only speaking to actuality, what we see with our own eyes. Right. But doesn't it feel like WWE for like six months had the United States Championship as the feud where all of the Mexican wrestlers can be involved? Carrillo, Rey Mysterio, <laughs> et cetera. And now it's the the title where all the black wrestlers can get involved. I mean, it's not. Yeah, I, you can't be blind to it. Like it's literally Apollo Cruz, Shelton Benjamin, Bobby Lashley, and MVP. And it's like, I I, I'm, I hope it's a coincidence. But and 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 it's not that none of them does all of them deserve to be in the feud. It's great. And, and I think what they're doing with using Shelton as the bridge between Cruz and Lashley and and everything is working exceedingly well. But. I can't, you can't be blind to it. Like we were talking about possibly having a huge Lucha Libre US title match at WrestleMania. I forgot what it was. Andrade, Carrillo, Rey Mysterio, and Angel Garza, maybe it was. Um, 
And we're like, oh my God, this could be an all-time sick match. Now, like, dude, I would love to see Shelton Benjamin, Apollo Crews, Bobby Lashley in a triple threat, um, or even just Bobby Lashley and Apollo Crews in a one-on-one. But am I wrong? Isn't it like blatant? It, it, it is. I, I, I think it's something they should make sure they're aware of that, that, uh, talents are spread across the card. And I mean, we just, you know, last year, last year was just in the, the of course, course. so it's not like, you know, anybody's necessarily being kept down or anything, but, uh, yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly just, I don't know, interesting. And it, it, it is certainly hard to ignore, I think. Yeah, I just, you know, I noticed it and I just felt like, hey, if we pointed it out about all the luchadors, we might as well point it out here. But look, I think Apollo Crews has done a really good job so far as champion. Uh, Pessimist in me says that, yeah, if he does fight Lashley for the title at Extreme Rules, Lashley will win. I don't know how they would have Apollo Crews beat Lashley in that scenario. Um, And that would kind of suck because then the concern obviously is, well, if Apollo Crews just lost the title and he finally got a push, What do they do with Apollo Crews since they're not doing rematches? That's where I start getting concerned. But I think an Apollo Crews-Lashley match, talk about strength, size differential, ability, um, storyline. They're giving us a good storyline. I would be really excited to see that at at Extreme Rules or really at any point. Yeah, I I think it's been been good. I'm, I'm curious to see where it goes. I'd like to see Apollo get a handful of wins before going into this. Me too. Lashley match, he's only had a couple of defenses so far, and I think to really establish him, he's going to need to simply put look a little bit stronger. I agree with that. Now, over to SmackDown, last major topic we'll talk about. Chad Gable got a win over Mojo Rawley after another look. Guess what? He's short backstage segment. Uh, I thought it was good to see the clean win for Gable despite the shitty gimmick, but I'm also kind of getting tired of Gable only winning via roll-up. Like, why don't you have him actually beat people real? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if, if this is the gimmick and it's about overcoming adversity, have him tap people out, have him get finisher pinfall victories, etc. But the match was fine and Gable going over and getting screen time. These are all positives. The negative was Michael Cole's reaction, calling it a huge upset that an Olympian and a former tag team champion, also one of the best natural wrestlers in the business, beat Mojo frickin' Raleigh. So for Michael Cole, zero point zero. But I will give a to Corey Graves for jumping on Cole immediately afterward, saying it's not an upset. Here's why. And actually having Chad Gable's back. Look, they got to get rid of the shorty gimmick. They got to actually give Chad Gable a real push and treat him like a legitimate competitor. You're going to have Drew Gulak go after the AJ Styles intercontinental title seemingly sooner than later. Well, Chad Gable needs to be on that list. I need an AJ Styles, Chad Gable, intercontinental title match. And if you want to put Chad Gable over, you have him beat AJ Styles for the title. Not every face needs to be some massive underdog. Like he's an Olympian. He's a accomplished guy. Just like promote that. Make him look good. Like if you make everybody in your promotion, if you, this is the Heyman thing. If you make everybody in your promotion, if you highlight all their strengths and ignore their flaws, it only makes everybody better. It only makes the wins better. W- what if Mojo Rawley had won that match? It would have meant nothing, apparently, because Jordy G apparently means nothing to Michael Cole. So, like, just like, it's just unnecessary. And the name's stupid. I don't know <laughs> so why stupid. we're still doing this. I'm glad I got rid of the basketball shorts, but like, 
it, it's so weird when they like you think they might decide to do something with someone and then you realize, oh, wait, he's still carrying all this nonsense baggage from whatever we were doing before. We're going to have to shed that over time. He, he actually still has the shorts, but what they did was they toned down the color so that it doesn't look like insane like John Cena. And they, he was wearing the basketball jersey, which was really bad. He's yeah. no longer wearing the jersey. As it never made any sense. What? No. What? It made, no, it made, it made him look like a total dork. It made him look like a total dork. Like he was 12 years old. It was ridiculous. So Gable, the look is slightly better. Let's get rid of the name. Let's treat him like a real dude because he is a real dude and he's awesome and he deserves the time. Um, and by the way, on the way out here, I do want to say that the opening to Raw is exactly what I've been talking about on the show for weeks. They previewed the entire show. If you just tuned in at 8 p.m., you knew every almost every single thing that was going to happen. You knew there were going to be multiple title matches. Ric Flair was going to be there. Rey Mysterio was returning. It gave you a reason to stay. And all show long, they promoted what was up next and what was still to come. And that is how you keep viewers. So I got to give kudos to Raw and WWE for actually finally figuring that out after all these months of dropping ratings. Uh, we always close this show by talking about What's coming up next this week in pro wrestling, specifically NXT and AEW? This show has gone on very long. I'm going to run through it very quick. On the NXT side, North American Championship, Keith Lee versus Johnny Gargano versus Finn Balor in a main event that every single wrestling fan should be watching on Wednesday night. The winner of that match in a Gold Rush style situation will go on to face Adam Cole for the NXT Championship in a title versus title match. We also have Karrion Cross versus Bronson Reed and Cameron Grimes versus Damian Priest. So the rest of the show, not overly strong, but at least they have announced matches. Over on the AEW side, Chris, tell me what you're looking forward to out of all of this. Matt Hardy, now defend, now fighting Santana, as opposed to Sammy Guevara, who is suspended for the reasons we mentioned earlier. FTR against the Natural Nightmares. Luchasaurus against Wardlow. Mr. Brody Lee and Colt Cabana tagging against Joey Janela and Sonny Kiss. John Moxley in action. Cody in attendance. They just kind of said Cody will be there. Um, and Chris Jericho and Orange Cassidy facing off ahead of their match at Fighter Fest, which will basically be an episode of Dynamite. So out of that lineup, what stands out to you for AEW on Wednesday? Well, well anytime I'm seeing FTR in the ring again, I'm paying attention. Uh, I, I think they're the best tag team there is. And it's always good to see that they're getting regular push on Dynamite. Uh, the Jericho Orange Cassidy thing has been really fun. I, I'm curious to see what what they do next here. It's been the last couple of weeks of that's been pretty good. And then I guess whatever the Cody situation was, because it looked like he was going to defend it every week and now they may not. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just curious what's going to happen uh, with that. But I, I know NXT and AEW, I believe their ratings were up pretty good uh, last week. And I'm, I'm curious if that's going to continue. Yeah, I think there's like a maximum, honestly, of 1.5 million people who yeah. will watch those products on Wednesday night. And maybe it can go slightly higher, 1.6, 1.7. But th that's the max. So it's it's them trading viewers. And then if anything happens in the news cycle, which let's be honest, a lot has happened in the news cycle recently. Uh, it eats into both shows, seemingly AEW a little bit more than NXT. But uh, NXT, I think, won the main event last week. I expect them ratings-wise to win the main event. This week, that is a very, very strong main event. Uh, but AEW, you know, it's a solid lineup. There's a lot announced for the show. We will see how everything goes down on Wednesday night. Don't forget to join us Thursday, where I will break down everything that goes down in NXT and AEW from Wednesday. As promised, we will also answer a ton of your DMs on that Thursday show. Be sure to follow us. I don't know why I said Busher, but be sure to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can follow Chris personally at 
Chris Vanini, and you can follow me at Silverstein Adam. And also, how about you don't forget? Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Yeah, go be a mark for me. Go be a mark for Chris. Head on over to Apple Podcasts. Hit that five-star button. Drop a rating. Drop a review. Tell us how much you love the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Folks, we just gave you two hours breaking down everything that went down in WWE. Of course, talking about The Undertaker documentary and the hashtag speaking out movement, which we completely support. I appreciate all of you listening. Chris says goodbye. I'm going to say goodbye in a moment, but we have one more person who wants to take you to the door on the way out of here. We got something going that's really big. Yeah, look in the video scope right now and tell them about Macho Madness. Tell them how strong it is and tell them where we're going. Yeah, we into the Twilight Zone. Yeah, and how Kogan's got no chance, does he? No. Does anybody have a chance against the Macho Man Randy Savage? Am I the greatest wrestler, past, present, and future that ever lived? Why? Okay, let's say goodbye. Say goodbye. Okay, get out of here. That's a little rough, Randy. Yeah, but it is rough. Yeah, wrestling is a rough sport. And I am the roughest one in the sport. I am the number one wrestler in the world today. Tell Hulk Hogan that. I will. I thank you, Randy Savage. See you all Thursday. Bye for now.